Book One, Chapter Two of Round the Block by John Belbooten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Three Bachelors. Near the center of the north side of the block stood a house in which three men, who have much to do in this story, were whiling away an hour before dinner at the edge of evening in the month of December, eighteen fifty blank. The house had strange stones let in over the windows and door and was broad and sturdy and was entered by steps slightly worn and was shaded by a tall and old chestnut tree and showed many signs of age it was because of these evidences of antiquity although the house was in good preservation and vastly comfortable that it had been picked out and rented by the three men two weeks previously yet the three men exhibited no marks of age past or coming upon them the oldest mr marcus wilkeson looked no more than thirty-two but frankly owned to thirty-six being six feet and two inches high having a slim figure round face smooth brow gentle eyes perfect teeth to the utmost extent of his laugh and a head of hair free from the plague-spot of incipient baldness which haunts the young men of this generation his appearance now that he was confessedly a man was very much like that of an overgrown boy. On the contrary, when he was really a boy, his extraordinary height, six feet at sixteen years, had given him the outward semblance of a premature man. Probably his long legs and arms, which were exceedingly supple, and were always swinging about with a certain juvenile awkwardness, contributed much to the youthfulness of his appearance at the time of his introduction here his legs were as quiet as in their nature they could be having been elevated for the greater comfort of the owner to the top of a pianoforte and presenting an inclination of forty-five degrees to mr wilkeson's body reposing calmly and smoking an antique pipe in his favorite chair below one of his long arms was hanging listlessly by his side and the other made a sharp projecting elbow and terminated in the interior of his vest this was the attitude which of all possible adjustments of the human anatomy mr wilkeson preferred and he always assumed it and his pipe the moment he had put on his dressing-gown and turkey slippers he was well aware that popular treatises on the art of behavior and the code of politeness were extremely hard on this disposition of the legs his half-sister philomela wilkeson who was high authority had often visited his legs with the severest censure when upon suddenly entering the room where he was seated she found the offending members confronting her from the top of the piano or the table or a chair or sometimes from the mantelpiece while marcus wilkeson admitted the full force of her strictures as applied to legs in general he claimed an exception for his legs which were always in his own or other people's way when they rested on the floor or were crossed after the many fashions popular with the short-legged part of mankind marcus wilkeson's heretical opinion concerning legs was part of a system of independent views which he entertained of life generally he had given up a profitable broker's shop in wall street a year before because he had made a fortune ten times larger than he would ever spend having fulfilled the object for which he started in business and for which he had toiled like a slave ten years he conceived that nothing could be more sensible than to retire from it make room for other deserving men 
and enjoy his ample earnings in the ways which pleased him most before an old age of money-getting had deadened his five senses his intellect and his heart persons who knew marcus wilkeson well were aware that he was a shy self-distrustful fellow amiable generous and that the only faults which could possibly be alleged against him were an excessive fondness for old books old cigars and profitless meditations and a cat-like affection for quiet corners and when his half-sister philomela who had no hypocritical concealment about her thank heaven and always told people what she thought of them pronounced the first of those luxuries trash the second disgusting and the other two idiotic he met her candid criticisms with a pleasant laugh and said that at any rate they hurt nobody but himself to which philomela invariably retorted but suppose every strapping fellow at your time of life should take to novel reading and such fooleries what would become of the world i would like to know and her brother puffing out a long stream of smoke would respond suppose my dear sister every woman was destined to be an old maid as you are what would become of the world i would like to know the conversation always terminated at this point by philomela declaring that coarse personality was the refuge of weak-minded people when they could not answer arguments and that for her part she would never take the trouble to say another plain straightforward word for his good whereupon there would be a truce lasting sometimes a whole day fayette overtop the second of the three young men the one looking out of the window drumming idly on the glass and continually tossing back his head to clear the long black hair from his brow over which it hung in an incurable cowlick was a short compact nervous person twenty-five years old mr overtop had been educated for the law but finding the profession uncomfortably crowded when he came into it had not yet achieved those brilliant triumphs which he once fondly imagined within his reach for three years he had been in regular attendance at his office from nine a m to three p m as per written card on the door except in term time when he was a patient frequenter of the courts during these three years he had picked up something less than enough pay for half of the rent of two small dimly lighted but expensive rooms on the fourth floor of a labyrinth in the lower part of the city mr overtop when asked to explain this state of things about which he made no concealment always attributed it to a lack of clients if he had clients enough and of the right kind he felt confident that he could make a figure in the profession having few clients and those in insignificant cases only of course he had no opportunities for distinction he could not stand in the street and beg for clients or drag men forcibly into his chambers and compel them to be clients and he would not degrade the dignity of his calling by advertising for clients or taking any means whatever to get them except by establishing a reputation for professional learning and integrity the only inducement which he ever put in the way of clients was a series of signs outside the street door on the first flight of stairs at the head of the first landing on the second flight of stairs at the head of the second landing and so on to the fourth floor where the firm name of overtop and maltboy 
confronted the panting climber for the eighth and last time, painted in large gold letters on black tin nailed to the office door. Mr. Overtop was willing to give clients every facility for finding him when they had once started at the bottom of the building, and would, as it were, lead them gently on by successive signs. But good luck and a good name, slowly but surely acquired, must do the rest. A snug property, of which Mr. Overtop spent less than the income, fortunately enabled him to indulge in these novel views, and to regard clients much as they were desired, as by no means indispensable to his existence. In his unprofessional hours Mr. Overtop was everything but a lawyer. He was chiefly a philosopher, a discoverer, a searcher after truth, a turner-up of undeveloped beauties in everyday things, which, he said, were rich in instruction when intelligently examined. He could trace out lines of beauty in a gridiron, and detect the subtle charm that lurks in the bootjack. As not unfrequently happens in partnerships of business and of other descriptions, Matthew Maltboy, the young man standing before the blazing coal-fire, and critically surveying his own person, was quite the opposite of Fayette Overtop. Maltboy was fat and calm. Portraits were in existence, showing Maltboy as a young lad in a jacket and turn-down collar having a slim, graceful figure, a delicate face, and a sad but interesting promise of early decay upon him. Other portraits of the same original, taken at later periods of the photographic art, represented a gradual squaring out of the shoulders, a progressive puffiness in the cheeks, lips, and hands, incipient folds in the chin, and a prevalent swollen appearance over all of Matthew Maltboy that the artist permitted the son to copy. Portraits of Maltboy for a series of years would have proved a valuable contribution to human knowledge, as showing the steady and remarkable changes through which a man who is doomed to be fat passes onward to his destiny. But Maltboy stopped sitting for portraits when he reached the age of twenty, deciding, as many other public character has done, to transmit only the earlier and more ethereal representations of himself to posterity. By some compensating law of nature there were given to Maltboy a light and cheerful heart, a tendency to laugh on the smallest provocation, and a nice susceptibility to the beautiful. Not the beautiful in rivers, forests, skies, and other inanimate things, but the beautiful in woman, and as Overtop was gifted to discover charms in material objects which were plain in other eyes, so Maltboy possessed the wonderful faculty of seeing beauty in female faces where other people saw, perhaps, only a bad nose, dull eyes, and a pinched-up mouth. This mental endowment might have been a priceless gift to a portrait painter, who was desirous of gratifying his sitters, but it was for Matthew Maltboy a fatal possession. It had led him to love too many women too much at first sight and to shift his admiration from one dear object to another, with a suddenness and rapidity destructive to a well-ordered state of society. Though these multiplied transfers of affection occasionally caused some disappointment among the victims of Mr. Maltboy's inconstancy, it was widely ordained that he should be the principal sufferer. 
that every new passion should involve him in new difficulties, and subject him to a degree of mental distress which would have reduced the flesh of any man not hopelessly predisposed to fatness. As Mr. Matthew Maltboy stood by the fire, he was not taking the profitable retrospective view of his life which he should have taken, but was glancing with an expression of concern at the circumference of a showy vest pattern which cut off the view of his legs. The apartment in which the three bachelors were keeping a meditative silence was large, square, high, on the first floor back, commanding an ample prospect of neglected rear yards, and all the strange things that are usually huddled into those strictly private domains. The furniture of the room was rich and substantial, but not too good to be used. The chairs were none of those frail, slippery structures of horsehair and mahogany, so inhospitably cold to the touch, but they were oak, high-backed, deep, long-armed, softly but stoutly cushioned with leather, and yawned to receive nodding tenants and send them comfortably to sleep amid the fragrant clouds of the after-dinner pipe or cigar. At one end of the room was Marcus Wilkeson's library, consisting of about five hundred volumes of poems, novels, travels by land and sea, histories and biographies, which the owner dogmatically held to be all the books in the world worth reading. The admission of a new book to this select company of standard worthies, Mr. Wilkeson was vain enough to regard as a high compliment to the author, and as a final settlement of any disputes which might have been abroad as to its merits. On another side of the room was a grand piano, open and covered with the latest music, and sometimes played on in a surprisingly graceful manner by the fat fingers of Matthew Maltboy. On the walls hung some pictures that were not unpleasant to look at. There were two portraits of danseuses with little gauzy wings and wands tipped with magic stars, one large full-faced likeness of a pet actress taken in just the right attitude to show the rounding shoulders, the lightly poised head and the heavy hair, to the best advantage, some charming French prints, among them Niobe and her daughters, and Di Vernon, and a half-dozen pictures of the fine old English stagecoach days. Over the fireplace were suspended several pairs of boxing gloves, garnishing the picture of a tall fellow in fighting attitude, whose prodigious muscles were only a little smaller than those of all the saints and angels of all the accredited masterpieces of ancient art. A pair of foils and masks, neatly arranged over each corner of the mantelpiece, completed the decorations of the room. The three bachelors had gone into housekeeping by way of experiment as a relief from the tedium and oppression of hotels and boarding-houses, and as an escape from female society, which was beginning to pall even upon the huge appetite of Matthew Maltboy. But two weeks of this self-imposed exile, with no female society but Miss Philomela Wilkeson and Mash the cook, proved rather too much for Matthew's fortitude. He yawned audibly. I understand you, said Marcus. You are sick of this. Well, hm, it's a little prosy at times. Maltboy yawned again. Incorrigible monster, cried Marcus. 
What shall we do with him, Top? The person addressed swung back the rebellious cowlick from his forehead, as if to clear his thinking faculties from a load while he considered the grave question. Do with him? Do with him? Oh, I'll tell you. Here the speaker's eyes flashed with the light of a great discovery. Tether him like a horse with a certain limited area to feed in. Do you see? Do you see? A horse? Can't say that I do, returned Mr. Marcus Wilkeson. And I can't say that I do, either, added Mr. Matthew Maltboy. A horse? Why not say a donkey? I should see it quite as well. As you please, resumed the impetuous overtop. A donkey, then. Perhaps the metaphor will be better. What I mean, what you two are so dull as not to see, is to put this unreliable Maltboy on a moderate allowance of flirtation, to keep him, for example, within the limits of this block. Do you see? Do you catch the idea? It begins to dawn on me, said Wilkeson. And I catch a ray or two of it, added Maltboy, but— Excuse me, interrupted Overtop, stepping between his two companions, and gesticulating wildly at each of them in turn, as if he would dart conviction into them like electricity from the tips of his fingers. Here is a block full of people. Their houses are joined together, or nearly so, all the way round. The inhabitants hear each other's pianos playing and each other's babies squalling all day long. If a fire breaks out in the block, it may be all burned down together. If the measles make its appearance on the block, it probably runs through it. Is there not, therefore, a community of dangers among us? And if of dangers, why not of pleasures? Why should not the inhabitants of a block be regarded as a distinct settlement or tribe, whose members owe kindness and good will to each other before the rest of the world? Looking at it in the light of humanity, is it not our duty to know our neighbors? And Matt would say, to love them, too. That is, the young and pretty ones, observed Wilkeson. Precisely, said Maltboy. Excuse me, continued Overtop, deprecating further interruption with both hands. That is the point I was just coming to. Since Maltboy must have female society, and cannot be kept out of it by main force, why not give him the range of this block? Catch the idea, eh, in its full force and bearings? Wilkeson and Maltboy implied by nods that they caught it. And, ahem, I think I'll take the same range, too, added Overtop. Not because I care a pin about female society, but just to test my new theory. Cries of, oh ho, from Marcus Wilkeson. Overtop laughed. You'll be a convert to it yet, my good fellow. Never, said Marcus, inflexibly, so long as books and tobacco hold out. We'll see, replied Overtop. But let me think how we are to begin. He rubbed his nose with a forefinger, then tossed back the cowlick and said impetuously, I have it, I have it. We know Quigg, the grocer, at the corner below, for we are customers of his. Of course, he has an immense number of customers on the block, and will make New Year's calls on all of them in the way of business. Why can't he take us in tow? It's as plain as daylight. Plain enough, I admit, said Marcus Wilkeson, 
But what will Quigg's customers say? Poor fellow, returned Overtop, how feebly you hermits reason about society. If you had knocked round town on New Year's days, as Matt and I have often done, you would know that visitors are valued only because they swell the number of calls, and that it is entirely immaterial who they are, or who introduces them. The militia general, the banker, the judge, the D.D., the butcher, the dry-goods clerk, are units of equal value on that day, each adding one more to the score which is privately kept behind the door. We shall be welcome, never fear for that. You must come with us and see for yourself. I thank you, said Marcus Wilkeson, laughing. No such fooleries at my time of life. Very well, said Overtop. Matt and I will try to represent the new firm of bachelor housekeepers creditably. Matt will look after the pretty girls, and I after the sensible ones, that is, if there happen to be any on this block. Agreed, observed Matthew Maltboy, catching a view of himself in a glass over the fireplace, and not wholly displeased with his appearance. Another thought strikes me, said Overtop explosively. It's nearly half an hour to sunset. I am impatient to begin my acquaintance with our fellow-citizens, our future friends, if I may so call them. Let us look out of the windows, and see what the excellent people are doing. Perhaps it may interest even a recluse and bookworm like you. Nonsense, rejoined Marcus Wilkeson. There's no curiosity in my composition. And yet, when his two companions stood at the window of the little back parlor, pressing their noses against the glass and looking out. He could not resist the temptation to join them, although he thought proper to punch them in the ribs and call them a pair of inquisitive puppies, by way of showing how much he was superior to the great human infirmity. End of Book 1 Chapter 2